Hello and welcome to Sex Ed for Sex Med, a podcast produced by the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative for medical providers caring for women. However, women experiencing sexual difficulties who perceive a lower quality of life do not feel like themselves and are looking to increase their knowledge of sexual health are also encouraged to listen. I'm your host, Dr. Terry Gibbs, and together with my rotating medical experts, we'll be providing evidence-based fundamental and advanced concepts for evaluating, educating, and empowering women with sexual concerns. We'll be addressing physical, mental, and sexual health wellness as all these aspects are important to enjoying a healthy sexual life. Today, we have Dr. Heather Wall, who's a fellowship-trained gynecologist in minimally invasive surgery and chronic pelvic pain. She is part of a pelvic health clinic in Toledo, Ohio. She's an assistant clinical professor for the University of Toledo Department of OBGYN. She is active in the North American Menopause Society and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Also, she is a board member of the Ohio Sexual Health Collaborative. Today, she will be discussing the common benign disorder, endometriosis. We'll discuss how and why the disorder impacts female sexual health and what can be done. Please enjoy this podcast. Well, today we have again with us, Dr. Heather Wall, a friend of ours, um, who is a gynecologist who's fellowship trained in minimally invasive surgery and chronic pelvic pain. We're talking about endometriosis, a common benign condition, but but a hard condition to, to deal with. And Dr. Wall, we've talked about this before. Dr. Wall could go on about this endlessly. So I'm very <laughs> happy to have her on the podcast today to give you some direction on uh, how to help people, not only maybe with the endometriosis, but with their sexual health. So welcome, Heather. Thank you for coming. Well, thanks for having me again. It's great to be back. (laughs) Well, let's start off the discussion today with just, you know, review for our uh, friends, learners, um, just some of the basics of endometriosis, the pathology, you know, what's going on? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I think first and foremost, endometriosis is a lot more common than we think. It's thought that anywhere from 5 to 15% of reproductive age women have endometriosis. So we typically say about 1 in 10 women likely have endometriosis. And, you know, that number is probably higher than that, right? But we're not doing surgery on every woman. And, and still to this day, you know, endometriosis is considered a surgical diagnosis. So what I say to patients is we may have a clinical suspicion based on history, but I, you know, if if we're really concerned, you know, getting a tissue specimen um, to confirm, you know, endometriosis on pathology is is still really uh, an important piece. Still to this day, we do not know uh, what causes endometriosis. So there's a lot of hypotheses on how it can start. Um, One hypothesis is through a process known as retrograde menstruation, meaning that when a woman is on her period, some of the blood flow um, is kind of pushed out through the fallopian tubes and ends up inside the abdomen. And it's thought that um, within that blood, there could be cells that, you know, normally line the cavity of the uterus. 
And then those cells might say, you know, I kind of like it here inside the abdomen. So I'm going to kind of stick to the, the walls and kind of implant. Now, that being said, the reason that this is still just a hypothesis is because we actually know a lot of women experience retrograde menstruation during their period, and not all of those women will go on to develop uh, endometriosis. Another hypothesis is that there is some sort of genetic component for endometriosis, um, and it's thought that that might be um, contributing because we know that if a woman has a first-degree relative with endometriosis, she is seven to 10 times more likely than the general population to have endometriosis. Um, even if a patient has a second degree relative um, with endometriosis, again, it still, you know, slightly increases her risk um, compared to the general population. But that first degree relative is, is by far the, the most. There's also some thought that, you know, are these cells, you know, coming from the cavity of the uterus and ending up in, inside the abdomen through the blood vessels or the lymphatic vessels? Um, so is that how they're getting from one place to another? Um, there's also a thought that are the cells just kind of transitioning? Um, so did a cell inside our abdomen decide, you know, I don't want to be that type of cell anymore. So I'm going to transition to an endometrial cell. So, um, and then there's still some other hypotheses. I mean, there, there's several, but um, those are kind of, I, I view those four as the main ones. Um, but again, still to this day, we don't know what causes those endometrial cells that would normally just be inside the cavity of the uterus to grow where they shouldn't be. So uh, somebody coming in that you suspect that they have endometriosis, what do they look like? What do they sound like? What are they saying? Yeah. So a lot of women will report kind of first and foremost, just terrible pain with periods. So dysmenorrhea um, is that medical term. This often is pain that starts um, before the period, gets you know bad during the period often, and then after the period, they tend to report that their pain improves. Um, you know, for some women with endometriosis, they may have chronic pain. So separate from kind of just having really painful periods, they may have pain like on all other days, you know, even when it's not associated with their period. Um, so so that can occur. With regard to the period, women may often um, with endometriosis report that they have really heavy bleeding, you know, um, more than uh, normal, um, in addition to, you know, really bad uh, pain. Pain with sex um, is often really common in women who have uh, endometriosis. So there have been some large case control studies um, that have been done looking at, you know, women who have endometriosis and comparing them to um, controls. Um, and it's found that women with endometriosis are seven times more likely than women without endometriosis to have pain with intercourse. Typically this pain with intercourse, so kind of medical term for that is dyspareunia, um, typically, this is um, painful intercourse with deep penetration most often, um, but women may have it with initial penetration as well. But again, most often it tends to be um, with deeper penetration. Women with uh, endometriosis may often report that, you know, hey, I've been trying to get pregnant for a while and, you know, I, I 
it's I have not been successful. Um, so we know that infertility rates um, are higher in women with endometriosis. So it's thought that between 30 to 50% of women with endometriosis may experience infertility. So I think it's important to keep in mind that kind of on average, the normal chance of a woman getting pregnant each month that doesn't have endometriosis is about 10 to 20%. And so in women who have surgically documented endometriosis, their chance of getting pregnant each month is only one to 10%. So, I mean, again, it, it is much lower in women with endometriosis. That, that those are great points. And I want to unpack a couple of those things. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot in those. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, so what, where's the pain coming from? This little endometriosis inside the tummy? Where, where, what's all the pain about? Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about endometriosis, for those of us who kind of specialize in endometriosis, we talk about stages a lot. So, you know, there's kind of four different stages of endometriosis. Um, stage one is minimal disease. Uh, stage two is mild disease. Um, stage three is kind of, we consider that moderate. And stage four is severe. So typically with the, you know, stage one, stage two disease, a woman may have kind of a, you know, several implants of endometriosis, but often you're not seeing a lot of scar tissue or adhesions um, that have formed compared to those more advanced stages of disease, stage three, stage four. Again, in that situation, a woman may have, you know, a lot more implants of endometriosis. These may be like deep infiltrating endometriosis nodules. Um, oftentimes women with advanced stage endometriosis can have cysts that form on their ovaries from endometriosis. Those are known as endometriomas. Scar tissue is really common where, so adhesions form where things kind of get stuck to, to uh, each other. Um, and so that's kind of um, how you get the different staging. So there is a staging system that those of us who specialize in endometriosis use um, when we um, operate on a woman um, and based on the, the score that a woman gets is kind of where you determine the stage. Um, the really interesting thing about the stage of disease is that there have been several research studies done that show us that stage of disease does not correlate with severity of pain. I'm gonna say that one more time because I think it's a hugely important point. Stage of endometriosis does not correlate with severity of disease. And that's so interesting, right? Because in a lot of other conditions, the worse the, the condition, the worse the symptoms, right? Um, but endometriosis doesn't behave like that. And I I think that that's so interesting because you know, one of the thoughts that why endometriosis is so painful is because it, it, it can recruit these implants inside the abdomen can recruit additional nerve fibers. And obviously, if you have kind of more nerve fibers, more nerve endings, you know, you can get um, more pain. So that's typically, you know, seen when there's like deep infiltrating endometriosis. But, you know, why um, it doesn't necessarily correlate, the stage doesn't correlate with severity may have to do with the fact that, again, we all experience pain differently. One, two, kind of where are those implants located? And, you know, we know that when a woman is on her period, 
Um, just like those, uh, your menstrual cycle causes bleeding. Um, if you have implants of endometriosis, they can also become inflamed and, and bleed. And so again, kind of depending on where those may be located, um, and you know, the size of those implants that, you know, that may be contributing to why a woman has more symptoms, but that being said, I've seen patients who have, um, really advanced stage four endometriosis. Everything is like stuck together, um, like cemented in the pelvis. And they're like, yeah, I don't have any pain even with their period. I don't have any pain. Right. So, it, um, that's why this can be kind of a really, um, tricky disease. And I think that, you know, this is, um, often why it can contribute to delay in diagnosis, um, for some women. No related. I mean, I think this will be an obvious thing, but, but what do you think about, you know, what's the mechanism dealing with the fertility problem? Is that, yeah. Can you diagnose that through the stages or a woman with any stage of endometriosis, uh, may have difficulty conceiving, getting pregnant. So even a woman with stage one endometriosis may have, you know, um, difficulty conceiving. Um, it's thought that partly what um, can contribute to infertility, regardless of the stage, is that the endometriosis itself is causing kind of this increase in inflammation and inflammatory markers, and the body doesn't like that. And that may be impacting you know, the, um, the egg number as well as the egg quality. So quality is, you know, really important when we talk about advanced stage of disease, oftentimes it's adhesions, um, that can contribute, uh, in addition to kind of, you know, the implants themselves, you know, kind of creating this inflame increase inflammatory environment but if there's adhesion, so if like the tubes are really stuck to things, then the tubes can become dilated and dilated tubes kind of medical term for that is a hydrocell pink. So we know that, you know, it's thought that a hydrocell pinks may um, decrease uh, an embryo transfer, right? For an infertility patient. And so that's often why like an infertility specialist requests that you address the hydrocell pinks before they do an embryo transfer so that you can increase the success of the embryo transfer. And specifically, you know, with the hydrocell pinks, what it's thought that makes the embryo transfer less successful if you leave the hydrocell pinks is maybe some of that fluid that's getting stuck in the tube is having an impact um, on the success rate of that transfer. And so they want to kind of, you know, have you remove that tube so that they don't have to worry about that. Um, so I think, you know, there's, um, a lot of things, you know, all that can be contributing, but those are some of the, the main things. But, you know, relating this now, we're, we, we talk on this podcast about sexual health mm -hmm. and, and it's really obvious, um, laying this stuff out. Somebody with one of these problems are, you know, dealing with pain and so, mm -hmm. uh, and then dealing with fertility, which, you know, is, is I think connected very closely to, to sexual. Oh, health. absolutely. And so, you know, what do you do with them? Yeah. People are down in the mouth. They're, you know, having problems with maybe at home with their partner. Uh, 
What, what, yeah. What do you think? What do you well, do? first and foremost, never tell a patient with endometriosis that she's not going to be able to get pregnant. Um, I've had so many patients that have been told that by other providers. So they stop using protection, thinking that they're never going to get pregnant and boom, they got pregnant. So, you know, <laughs> it is a common misconception that to say that a woman with endometriosis is never going to be able to conceive. That is not correct. So um, what I say to patients is that we do know that endometriosis can make it more difficult to get pregnant. We do know that, uh, you know, um, some women with endometriosis are going to um, need to utilize an infertility specialist in order to get pregnant. But this does not mean that you will never be able to conceive, right? You just may need the help of an infertility specialist. Now, obviously, that's like you know, financial limiting for some people. Um, and that's obviously something to be mindful of, but don't tell a woman with endometriosis that she's not going to be able to get pregnant because that's not true. Um, the other thing that's really important to know is that when it comes to infertility, male factor is a big portion of infertility. So it's not just the woman necessarily, right? So, you know, when you do have a patient that who's been struggling with infertility, um, I do think it's important for them to recognize that, again, it may not just be a female problem. It may be the partner uh, contributing as well. And so this also needs to be evaluated, whether that's, you know, done by uh, a patient's like general OBGYN or if they um, just go and meet with um, an infertility specialist and, and, and they address that. So that's that's the other thing. Um, and when it comes to kind of sexual health, you know, obviously, if a woman is reporting pain with sex, well, that's obviously going to, you know, be affecting the potential of her to get pregnant. Um, because if it's too painful to have sex, then a lot of times these women have stopped having sex with their partner, right? Um, so if pain with sex is present, this is where, you know, getting that really detailed history to, you know, figure out, okay, is this pain with initial penetration or deep penetration or both? Um, let's assess the pelvic floor muscles. You know, I take care of plenty of women who have endometriosis um, and also have, you know, pain in their pelvic floor muscles. Um, we do know that you know, that pain in the pelvic floor muscles, that myofascial pain, I know I've talked about it before, you know, <clears throat> the risk of myofascial pain is higher in patients who have inflammatory types of conditions, endometriosis being an inflammatory type of condition. Um, so these things often can go hand in hand. Um, so again, if you're just treating the endometriosis, but you're not addressing the pelvic floor muscles um, to help with that pain with sex, then, you know, you're doing your patient a disservice. So this is where, you know, again, getting that history, doing your physical exams, assessing the pelvic floor muscles to see if that patient can benefit from uh, pelvic floor physical therapy um, is, is going to be helpful so that the couple together can kind of work towards what their goals are um, for family planning. You know, you teach uh, the residents how many people, uh, how many women have pelvic pain period mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um just you related this very nicely what you just said but um relate this to um you know your workup and looking for all the different kinds of of reasons for for pelvic pain oh gosh there are many <laughs> right um 
Yeah. So there, there are many, I mean, I, again, I think this is where history is um, really key kind of, again, getting that past medical history, um, surgical history, menstrual history, GYN history, you know, uh, like all of those things become really important, you know, when it comes to sexual dysfunction, you know, again, asking that sexual history, oftentimes we see this in, you know, studies like patients are like, my providers never asked me my sexual history. Was it painful? Um, so, you know, that's, that's an, that's an important piece. Um, so that cannot be, you know, stated enough. I feel like the other thing is, you know, when, um, you're again, getting that menstrual history, asking how long has this been going on? You know, have you ever needed to, you know, miss school, miss work? You know, those, it's not normal to to have to kind of spend all day in bed for multiple days in a row on your period, right? And I think so many times um, women have been dismissed um, for their pain with their periods. And oftentimes I hear from patients, oh, well, you know, my family members told me like, that's just normal. Um, and, and so, you know, kind of, it's not normal. So, um, kind of validating what your patient is, is telling you, I think is also really important when, when getting that history. You have a woman with a lot of pain, maybe she's not ready for a baby, Mm -hmm. but she, she's just so down in the mouth about just pain day in, day out with the Mm -hmm. the menses. What what are you going to do for this woman? What, what? what Yeah. So, you know, First line treatment for painful periods, dysmenorrhea, is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, right? So things like um, Motrin, um, things like um, naproxen. Um, so I think one thing that's really important is that when you're talking to patients about non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, you need to provide instructions on how to take that medication. So in the studies that were done, these were women who were given scheduled uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications that started the day before uh, the period and were continued on the heaviest days. So typically kind of the first, you know, say two to three days of their period when the bleeding was heaviest. In in those studies, when the medication was given scheduled, um, women reported not only a reduction of their pain, but a reduction of their bleeding. So oftentimes when I see patients, they're like, oh yeah, I take Motrin. Well, how do you take Motrin, right? You have to, again, be curious, ask more questions. (laughs) So, you know, when I hear a patient, oh, I take like one tablet of the -the over-the-counter. So I'm like, you took 200 milligrams all day long. Of course, that's really not going to do much for most people. So, you know, talking um, uh, in detail about how we want a medication to take, uh, how we want the medication to be taken is really important. If scheduled NSAIDs is still not addressing the issue, then this is where we talk about hormonal suppression. And, you know, hormonal suppression is also first-line treatment for endometriosis, um, you know, so um, this is where, again, you don't necessarily, you don't jump to surgery because you want to try the the least invasive options first. So, you know, if your scheduled uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication didn't work, then it's, you know, talking to your patient about 
hormonal suppression at either cyclic hormonal suppression, where the patient has a withdrawal bleed every month or every three months, how, you know, kind of however you want to do that, or whether that involves like continuous hormonal suppression. Now, um, you're, you've heard me say hormonal suppression, right? Not birth control. Um, and I'm very mindful of, about that. So I'm, I'm going to stop and point that out. So what I say to my patients, cause they're like, what do you mean by hormonal suppression? And I say, well, oftentimes others might refer to that as birth control. The reason I don't refer to it as birth control is because we use hormones for lots of different reasons. Pregnancy prevention is just one of those reasons, right? Um, now, obviously, if a woman is trying to conceive, hormonal suppression is not a great option. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have to tell a patient, well, you know, if we put you on hormonal suppression, this will prevent you from being able to get pregnant. Okay. Um, so that's just something that they have to know. Um, but there's, you know, combinations. So estrogen and um, progesterone containing hormonal suppression, there's progesterone only hormonal suppression. So again, there's lots of different options and it's sometimes kind of finding the option that's going to work for your patient. If you do have a, a patient who is trying to conceive, who obviously they cannot be on hormonal suppression, then don't forget about the non-hormonal um, transexamic acid. Um, we often, it's, you know, I, I have a lot of patients that have never been, you know, told about that medication. And if they have really heavy bleeding with their periods, it is a good non-hormonal option that they can use with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications in addition to, you know, taking that medication, which can be taken, you know, up to five days out of the month during the period to help decrease the amount of bleeding that a woman has. So, you know, sometimes, you know, that's going to be good for them to take while they're trying to conceive. You know, if we get to the point where, again, we've, you know, tried hormonal suppression, we may have had to try a couple to find the one that's, you know, working the best for them with the least amount of side effects. And we're still, you know, not really addressing symptoms, patients still having pain. Well, then I at that point, you know, um, it's not unreasonable to talk to your patient about, you know, going to the operating room, doing that diagnostic laparoscopy to look for endometriosis. But that being said, I always say to my patients, even if we find endometriosis, right, this is a chronic medical condition. There is no cure for endometriosis. And even though we diagnose it, hormonal suppression is still going to be recommended, right? So that doesn't get you out of that, right? And I think so often we we don't tell patients that this is a chronic medical condition, you know, not even a hysterectomy is considered definitive treatment, right? You, um, so, uh, and I, I've had patients come to me that were like, well, my doctor told me that if I had my uterus taken out, the endometriosis would be, would be completely gone. Well, that's not true. Um, so again, it's really important that we're providing appropriate counseling for our patients. Those are great points. I, I think that if somebody really wants to, you know, again, just have a, a good sexual life and they, they want to get rid of the pain. Mm -hmm. And they ask if we go to surgery, um, it, it, will this make all that better? No. Okay. No, I mean, very rarely, right? Because what we know about chronic pelvic pain 
is that it is a multifactorial pain condition. So, you know, can a woman with chronic pelvic pain have endometriosis? Can she have myofascial pain? Can she have painful bladder syndrome? Can she have, you know, other types of pain conditions? Absolutely. And, and most of the time she will have other things going on. So if you just put, you, the, I call them endo blinders. So if you put only, if you put your endo blinders on, and that's the only thing that you focus on in, in treating the, the woman right in front of you, then oftentimes, um, you're not, you're, you're not going to be treating the other things contributing to pain. And that patient will still have pain. I've seen so many patients who get sent to me who've been diagnosed with endometriosis and they still have pain. Um, and I've seen plenty of those patients who have had a hysterectomy and they're still having pain. Um, and so, you know, that's the other thing I counsel patients about, you know, that, and you, you, you know, you hope that patients are told these things before their surgery. Sometimes they're not, but this is where it's important to kind of, you know, go back and be aware of, you know, studies and practice evidence-based medicine, because we know that, you know, based on studies that have been published, that in a woman who undergoes a hysterectomy for treatment of chronic pelvic pain, regardless of the presence of endometriosis, 25 to 42% of women will, will continue to have pain. Um, and of that, 5% of those women actually reported that their pain was worse after surgery. So, you know, that's a staggering number. And most patients are not being told that information. Um, and so, even a hysterectomy, again, is not curative for endometriosis. There is no cure. It is a chronic medical condition, just like any other chronic medical condition. Um, and surgery may not make your pain go away. So again, this is where getting that detailed history, doing that detailed exam, figuring out what else is contribute could be contributing to pain and make sure that we're also addressing that. Take off the blinders, look at the per person as a whole. What what can you tell people that their chances would be to to have um, kind of a normal sexual life with a partner? I think it is possible. Again, it it's uh, what I say is it can take time because again, if you do have all you know several conditions that are all contributing to pain, well, then we need to address all of those conditions. And that may require, unfortunately, that a patient needs to be evaluated by several specialists, right? That, you know, they may need to be evaluated by a urologist or a gastroenterologist or a pelvic floor physical therapist, right? So you may be bringing other specialists on board um, to address every issue. Um, and that can be overwhelming. Um, and it, it, it's also going to take time, right? For most patients, they've been dealing with pain for many, many years. So I think it's important to note that just as they've been experiencing pain for, for all of these years, it, it's, there's no unfortunate overnight fix. So it's going to take time, you know, many months, um, for some people, it may be like, you know, a, a year until they feel like, okay, I, I feel like I'm more to myself, right? Um, but for most patients, there is improvement. What would you tell our learners, you know, that say that our gynecology learners, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just because I'm a gynecologist too, I, I, I've seen people who see, who have the endo blinds, blinders mm -hmm. and 
want to take this on all alone. Uh, you you mentioned there could Don't be do so that. many things. Yeah, so many things involved. How would you tell people to work this up? Yeah, I mean, I would say if you know of a specialist in your area, use them. <laughs> don't don't struggle. I mean, um, we, there there are people like me who you know have done the minimally invasive GYN surgery, especially like um, like especially fellowships. Um, who have gotten extra training for endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. So we, we are out there. Um, that's, I think an important thing to keep in mind. Um, and, and we, we want to, um, see these patients in collaboration with you. So I think like, that's really important. You know, I view my, myself as a, as a collaborator. So if I, and seeing a patient that was referred to me by their general OBGYN, I'm not here to step on toes, you know, like I'm seeing the patient for this specific chronic pain issue, endometriosis issue, you know, I don't do any routine GYN care so that I'm still having patients work with their generalist um, for like, you know, their pap smears for cervical cancer screening and breast exams, all that type of, you know, other really, really important um component of care, they're, they're getting that with their, their general provider. I'm just here to provide extra assistance because you're absolutely right. Like this can be really daunting, um, you know, and I'm happy to, you know, evaluate the patient, see what, see all of the things that I think are contributing. And if I need to be the one to put in, you know, the referrals to urology or gastroenterology or the spine clinic or the pelvic floor physical therapist or the pain psychologist or the rheumatologist, I mean, <laughs> the, the list can go on. Gotcha. If I need to be the kind of the person getting the patient to all of those different providers, wherever they need to go, um, I, I, I'm fine with that. You know, I, I've seen so many times, uh, you know, young people develop this and in an effort to, to, to do the definitive thing, we see at a young age, women getting not only hysterectomy, but getting their ovaries out, becoming menopausal. Mm -hmm. um, would you comment on that? Yeah. Please don't do that as if, <laughs> if, if the Thank ovaries, if the or ovaries look normal, please don't take them out. So here's, the, here's the way that I look at it. And here's the way that I counsel my patients. Um, if your ovaries are normal in appearance, why would I want to take them out and make you surgically menopausal? Because if I make you surgically menopausal, I'm going to have to put you on hormone therapy anyway. Um, because if we don't put a woman on hormone therapy, then we know that later on in life, she's at a higher risk of osteoporosis. She's at a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, and she's at a higher risk of memory issues, you know, specifically dementia, right? So, um, if we have to put you on hormone therapy anyway, then what's the difference if we just try hormonal suppression before we even get to surgery, right? Or if you do a hysterectomy and a woman is still experiencing pain with ovulation or is, you know, um, having like cyst formation, well, then we can do hormonal suppression for that. Hormonal suppression is not the same as hormone therapy, right? So, you know, again, if, if either way a woman is going to have to take a medication potentially, then why are we taking the ovaries out if they're normal in appearance, right? And the other thing is, 
we know that even after a woman goes through menopause, right? The, those first several years after menopause, there is still thought to be like some benefit um, from the low, low levels of, of the estrogen that the ovaries, are, you know, do still kind of make um, in the, the those first kind of initial years. So, you know, we really should, should be very mindful um, when we're thinking about whether or not we should take the ovaries. Now, again, sometimes you have those patients with the really advanced stage endometriosis, everything just glommed, stuck together. And in that situation, you don't have a choice, unfortunately, because the ovaries have to come with you because there's no way to leave them. Um, but you know, those women are at, you know, even a high risk of having like ovarian remnants, right? Because um, of how bad the adhesions can be. So, you know, I, I would say the the goal should not be in every patient that you're doing a hysterectomy on for, with endometriosis to take the ovaries. That like the goal should be to keep those. Those I, I treat those as precious. <laughs> yeah, they are. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it seems from our discussion, you know, it's endometriosis is common, mm -hmm. um, but it's so complex and can be so impacting to one's sexual health, but it's certainly possible to help people have a somewhat normal uh, sexual um, life, but mm -hmm. it sounds like it, it's going to take a village. And, and that's your, your, your message here that I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, the, at the end of the day, again, this is chronic, right? And I think that that's sometimes really hard for people to wrap their head around. It's easier if we're talking about blood pressure, you know, uh, hypertension or diabetes, we get that those are chronic medical conditions that, you know, somebody may have to take a medication lifelong for that, you know, chronic medical condition. Whereas, you know, with chronic pelvic pain or endometriosis, the thought is like, well, I, I don't want to do that. But it's like, well, but it's a chronic medical condition, right? So I think it's sometimes in just how we as the medical providers actually take the time to counsel our patients. Um, and, you know, this is the benefit I get, right? As a specialist, I get to spend an hour with my new pain patients, right? So I get to, you know, and I still can't get through everything in an hour. So, you know, but um, this is where, you know, frequent visits, making sure, hey, you know, let's talk about this again, because I think that, you know, it's so much information, right? Um, and that's really overwhelming that at the first visit, it's like, okay, we got to talk about this and this and this and that. So, you know, this is where um, at revisits kind of bringing up counseling again. So I know we talked about this, but let's, you know, like, let's bring this up. What, what do you, you know, where are you come, where are you thinking that we're going from here? So again, some women don't want to start hormonal suppression right away and that's fine. Right. So, you know, a patient has to be comfortable with these decisions, but this is where, again, you need to kind of constantly bring up that counseling of different options. Well, th thank you for your time today, because this is an incredibly big concept and something if you're going to take care of women you need to know about this because of how common it is and really appreciate your expertise and i thank you again so much my pleasure thanks for having me thank you for listening to this episode of sex ed for sex med 
Please find the articles used in today's discussion in the show notes for further study. Also, you will find the contact information for our expert today.